From time to time, Leanne and I will just comment to each other. Gee, people are funny, aren't they? As in, clever. I don't know if you saw it, but how good was that Mona Lisa meme that was going around recently about the stages of quarantine we're all experiencing? Here it is. If we work from left to right, it all seems so simple. And we just had to hoard toilet paper. Then find a mask. It's all getting quite tiring. Next minute, things are going awry. feel like we're going a little nuts. Time for a haircut. Time for some hair colouring. And then, oh, I seem to be sporting a larger tabernacle. I feel like a late night host doing a monologue. I have no idea if anyone thought that was funny, but I did. Oh, well. If COVID quarantining orders have taught us anything during our time in isolation, it's this. Human beings are made for relationships. Some of us are introverts and we can brag about not needing anyone other than a good book or a bicycle. But there comes a time when we agree with what God said to Adam back in Genesis. It's not good to be alone. It's why God created a woman for the man so that they could form human community. And ultimately, in the grand dreams of the Father, out of human community would come the pinnacle of all relationships. The church as the bride of the Son of God. The church has been designed by the Lord to mirror his perfect community of oneness in the Trinity. And it's made possible by the presence of the Spirit of God in our midst. Together we are joined in Christ by faith spiritually in a way that Paul says in Ephesians 3, which is quite frankly a mystery. Through Jesus, we can be one as the church. And through the testimony of this church, Ephesians 3.10 says, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rules and authorities in the heavenly realms. The church is amazing because God is amazing. And through Christ, he has created a living, breathing, relating, loving, serving, worshipping, living organism known as both the body of Christ. And today we see that it's also known as the bride of Christ. We've done a swift shift from Revelation back to Ephesians. I guess the segue is that Ephesus was one of the seven churches of Revelation, but the main reason is that we had two more messages to go to finish off our study in Ephesians, and next week Alan Ang is preaching Ephesians 6, and we couldn't miss out on that. He'd already written the message, so we're back in Ephesians for two weeks. Today, from Ephesians 5, we're going to see that firstly, family is a microcosm of the church and therefore filled with extravagant potential. Secondly, for families to truly mirror the church, someone needs to take responsibility. And thirdly, human relational flourishing depends on Christ-like stewardship of power. First, family is a microcosm of the church and therefore filled with extravagant potential. Paul has covered a lot of ground in his letter to the church at Ephesus. He explains the amazing fashion in which God has made a way to fix our problem of sin and then bless us with the most incredible blessings in the heavenly realms. He talks in earlier chapters about praying most earnestly for the Ephesians that God would enlighten their minds and hearts sufficiently that they might know just how much they have been given in Christ by virtue of believing in him. There's so much grace available and the grace is provided to do good works that in turn glorify God. 
Dividing walls of relational hostility have been broken down decisively through the death of Jesus for everyone. Because Jesus forgave, Paul says, we can forgive and be restored into relational wholeness. There's teaching about giftedness and diversity in Ephesians and unity and a whole lot about holy living. We're told to put away immorality, greed, heresy and impurity, to live as children of light in goodness, righteousness and truth. Leading up to Ephesians 5.15 where Paul says, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Paul's about to tell us how the family unit built around godly marriage is a microcosm, by that I mean a mini version of the church. But be careful because if you're not wise, if you're unwise, if you're unreflective about what truly wise family life is like, what godly marriage is like, you'll end up finding yourself in a marriage or family which doesn't reflect God's plans. Because the days are evil. The tide of society is moving against you, Paul says. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. The main portion of our passage begins with the title, Instructions for Christian Households. Before we dive in, anyone ever experienced a little hurt from family relationships? It's like most things that have enormous potential for good, they can also do a heap of bad. Family breakdown is the source of some of the most painful life experiences any of us will ever endure. Right now, as we join together in worship, we have all manner of testimony across our church. Some of us were affected adversely while we were in our mum's wombs because of the relational carnage going on in our family household. Others are in our latter years and we are still experiencing the deep emotional hurt caused from unresolved family issues. Have you noticed that no one is immune to family pain? Things can be going swimmingly, then all of a sudden some deeply suppressed hurt comes out and then people take sides and there's a lack of leadership sometimes in the family and boom, no peace, no love, no unity, no harmony, no mutuality. Yet the family is a microcosm of the church. I've said that a few times. Where does it come from? Verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. So if we were to summarise directly from the text, it says, Submit to one another as a direct connection to how you submit to Christ as Lord. 
Wives, submit to husbands. Husbands, love your wives. And then very quickly in this teaching about the family and the marriage covenant, which is typically at the core of a family, Paul leaps off to talk about Jesus. This passage is basically about Jesus more than marriages and families as you read it. Because Paul has a point to make. Families are a microcosm of the church and are filled with extravagant potential. Paul wants to link his teaching about marriage and family to Jesus and the church. And to really drive that home, he takes us back to Genesis pre-fall, Genesis 2.20. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. So Paul finishes this section by saying, verse 31, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then he says this in verse 32, This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Well, are you getting uh, frustrated because we haven't addressed the controversial issues of headship and gender equality? We're going to get there. Right now, this is the question. Why does Paul quote Genesis pre-fall texts when he's teaching on godly marriage? And why does he call it a profound mystery? I would suggest because marriage is so intense. It's intense because completely different people come together and are joined in sexual union, which is far more full-on than people really know, in the way that it bonds people together. There is so much give and take required and understanding and learning for marriage to work. It's a small version of the intense struggle we find for church to work. Why is marriage intense? Because let's face it, building families from scratch, that is, creating kids, is almost godlike. We play a part in a living soul coming into existence. It's so full on that Paul says it's a mystery. Paul says what I'm saying about marriage is a description of Jesus and his bride, the church. This is what Jesus did. Verse 31, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. You know, Jesus left his father's house, didn't he? And came to his bride's home. And he became one flesh through the incarnation and he fills his bride with literally what the Greek text calls his sperma, his spirit. I'm sorry if I'm tripping some of you out right now, but I'm just trying to highlight Jesus coming to earth and loving his bride utterly and completely, leaving his father to do it, is the image that God, through Paul, chooses to give us of marriage and family. What we have been told can happen in church community can be found in a much smaller sense, in the nuclear family built around the foundation of marriage. These families often include children, but like we find here in chapter 6, it can involve wider members of the household, like the slaves of the first century, and it's like that in many parts of the world now. 
Families, nuclear and extended, built typically around godly marriages, are a microcosm of the mysterious beauty Paul has already described as being available in the church. Is that your experience of family? Everyone celebrating their diversity like church is meant to be? Everyone sharing with one another, edifying one another with words and actions. There's commonality, there's unity, there's mutuality and interdependence. Is that your experience? I would put it to you that if it's not your experience, one possible reason is our second point. For families to truly mirror the church, someone needs to take responsibility. It's in essence what the idea of headship is all about. Someone taking responsibility. Verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. Sorry, I'm nowhere repeating that, but them's flammable words and worth repeating. What do we do with such words as these? Many would say they don't belong in the 21st century. Many would say that they were used for a husband to do harm to a wife and have been. Words like submission or subject yourself unto don't sound very appealing if taken out of context. This is one of many passages in the scriptures which we don't have time to survey now that have become problematic, particularly in recent decades, as we grapple with issues of gender equity. Broadly speaking, and again, this is broadly speaking, people tend to find themselves in one of four rough positions on the subject as it relates to Christianity. Christian feminists deny gender differences and see women as an oppressed group. Women must be liberated from male domination, including the patriarchal stories and themes in the Bible. Evangelical egalitarians advocate for equity between men and women in the home and the church. Women can hold any office in the church and perform any ministry based on their gifts and callings, not on their gender. The scriptures that Paul writes that seem to restrict women's ministry in this view are not universal prohibitions. They are specific instructions for particular contexts. Moderate complementarians encourage women to teach women and children, but prohibit them from serving in the church offices such as senior pastor or teaching elder. Women can offer a message to a mixed gender congregation as long as they are under the oversight of a male pastor or elder. Hierarchical complementarians restrict women's ministries to leadership among children and other women. Women may not hold any leadership office or function in the church where they might exercise authority over men. Now, I really just mentioned that to lay a foundation for the differences of opinions amongst Bible-believing people. I would suggest there needs to be another group in the middle of two and three, probably because it's 
somewhere where I think I sit, and I, I'm pretty sure many of us would suggest a nuanced version of other positions that might better represent what you believe. The point is, we probably all sit somewhere in that four-position four range. The mainstream conservative argument behind male headship is that it's, it's there in the Bible, there in front of us. It's backed up by many other scriptures. The Bible blames Adam in Romans rather than Eve for the introduction of sin, which seems to show that he is held accountable. He was responsible. Adam is given the instructions about what tree not to touch before Eve was created. He names the animals before Eve. The, the argument is much bigger than that. I'm just skimming over the top, but it gives you an idea of the conservative position. On the contrary, the argument against male headship in the family home centres around what the word head means. Often it is a word used to describe source, like the source of a river is the head of the river, and from Adam as the source came Eve. Also it's pointed out that the great stewardship mandate of Genesis 2 was given to both male and female, and it seems that together they mirror the image of God. There is a host of other biblical reasons why one might choose to question whether this teaching applies today, this male headship. Not least of which is the way in which Jesus honoured and trusted and empowered women in a completely counter-cultural way. One of the biggest challenges of, of interpreting the Bible in any era outside the first century is simply trying to understand what the cultural context was. In a Greco-Roman world, women were not deemed as valuable as men. They were seen as property of their husband. This is true. This is fact. In the first century, it was a shame honour culture and men were shamed and honoured for different things than women were shamed and honoured for. It was also a patron-client culture. So patronage was about the mutual exchange of goods for the common good. And in a marriage relationship, the husband was the patron benefactor and his wife was the inferior party, my point being. This is not a simple task to understand what additional factors were influencing some of these teachings. And it is a fair thing for a person to biblically sit in a more egalitarian position or what they might call a feminist position. We don't agree with slavery anymore. In the first century, it was as much a requirement, that is slavery, as electricity is for us. It's a different world. I think what I'm convicted of again, as I've studied for this message, is that I want to listen more carefully to what my sisters and brothers believe the Bible is saying as they reflect on its truth in light of their life experience, especially when they disagree with me. It's called liberty of conscience. We sit together under the word of God and ask for the Spirit's guidance to interpret the truth of the text. An absolutely key point in dealing with this text is that in the 21st century, we have a, we've lost a biblical concept of godly submission. Submission seems all bad, but Jesus demonstrates submission to us and encourages people who already submitted in their culture, that is slaves, children and women, to submit to earthly rulers as unto the Lord. Not submission without accountability, leading to abuse. Submission with accountability. Within a system of godliness, which has been defined throughout Ephesians. For families to truly mirror the church, someone needs to take responsibility. A great tragedy in the modern family is that with the partial or complete liberation of women and with 
that, a strong push back against passages like this. And with the failure of parents to raise their children in the Lord, mums and dads don't know who is meant to take responsibility for the family. It's fine to argue against headship, but someone has to take responsibility. Without leadership, households go toxic. Do you know what a church-reflecting, united, loving, mutually edifying home sounds and feels and smells like? Or have you been living in dissonance for so long you can't hear harmony anymore? Let me be a little vulnerable with you. I'm a sinner, like you. And I get cabin fever in global virus lockdown quarantines, like you. And a couple of weeks ago, not decades, weeks ago, I got angry about something in our home with our grown-up kids. It was short, it wasn't demeaning, it was an expression of significant frustration that sucked the life out of the household for a bit. For the next 12 hours, we all heard the dissonance. As the head of the house, it was my duty to speak to the offending person and bring them into line with the culture of our house, which was the aim to be a microcosm of the church. Our family, like the church, is filled with extravagant potential for good, and so I needed to address the person because headship is about responsibility. The problem was... The person who needed to be addressed was me. And in that moment of realisation, I found great freedom because I realised if I was someone else, I would go and speak to them. So I I apologised to everyone individually in the house. And that invited another apology and an embrace and forgiveness and oxygen back into the household. Paul says in Ephesians, don't let the sun go down on your anger. The Bible says... Headship is about laying down your life for the sake of your family. It's what Jesus did. See, if you don't get used to what harmonious living feels like, sounds like, smells like, you can't tell when it starts going bad. Your family is designed to mirror the most amazing living thing, the church. Human relational flourishing depends on Christ-like stewardship of power. So you don't believe in male headship. Okay. You know, someone has to lead at some point. Or a little community, a little family, will descend into chaos. This is my humble offering in the world of ideas about headship. I believe it is all about the stewardship of power. I'm happy to go with male headship, myself and our family, as a biblical mandate. But if you don't go with that understanding of Scripture, then you can always interpret Paul as saying, whoever has power... You are to use it the way Christ used power. Let's face it, men throughout history have had access to far more power than women. It is an indisputable truth. Men are typically bigger than their female counterparts, often stronger. Whatever the reason throughout history, they have enjoyed access to power across cultures. And the power is handed on to the next generation of males and the next generation. Power. Every human interaction is an exchange of power. We know that. We know a lot about the abuse of power with the Me Too movement, with clergy sexual abuse, with domestic violence, with corporate corruption. Power. Power in human community is dynamic. Husbands and and wives need to understand where the power lies. It shifts throughout the journey of life. It could be earning capacity, restraints of child-rearing, Power needs to be stewarded. 
in the way that Paul describes headship. Headship is about the stewardship of power. So you're a feminist and you believe that you are the head of your family. Well, your instructions are clear. Lay your life down for your husband and family as Christ laid his life down for the church. Love your family with everything that they might be everything they can be in Christ. That's your job. What do you do if you enjoy positional power in your family? We follow Jesus' example in John 13. When Jesus washed his disciples' feet, it was which is the most mind-blowing reversal of power. Jesus said, if your Lord and teacher has washed your feet, what are you going to do? You're going to do likewise. Headship is, in essence, the Christ-like stewardship of power, isn't it? Paul began by saying, verse 15, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. The wise couple will recognise early on, you don't know as much about the other sex as you think. I am going to have to become a learner. If this marriage, if this family is going to be a microcosm of the church filled with extravagant potential for good, I am going to need to try to understand how my soulmate ticks. How are they different from me? Why has God given me them to share my life with? How do they complement me? How do I complement them to God's glory? Understanding. Be wise. As we learn more about one another, we might find that we're made quite differently and we have different needs. Paul writes, however, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. Love and respect. Husbands, try loving your wives so that they know they are being loved. Wives, Try respecting your husband so that they know they're being respected. You never know. Paul might be onto something. Family is a microcosm of the church and therefore filled with extravagant potential. May you find that potential in your family. For families to truly mirror the church, someone needs to take responsibility. May God be with you if you're one of the leaders. And human relational flourishing depends on Christ-like stewardship of power. Now, may we all find the grace to steward power in a godly way. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we give you all the glory today because you have shown us the perfect example of stewardship of power. You descended into greatness by leaving heaven. You left your father and you came and became one of us. You united with flesh and you loved your bride, the church, unto death. We give you all the glory for all that you have done and all that you have shown us in your life and death and resurrection. We thank you for your spirit. We have everything we need for life and godliness. We have everything we need for amazing families, extended clans. May we give all the glory to you. May we enjoy mutuality and love. And may we enjoy what submission really looks like in the family unit that the world might see that we are different as a church built up of godly families. May we take the gospel to the world the way you did as servants in the name of Jesus. Amen.